Hello, and welcome to Slate Money Succession. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and all manner of other fabulous places. Hello. And we have a very special guest this week, Mr. Ewan Raleigh. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Ewan, introduce yourself. Who are you beyond being one of the world's great Murdochologists? I am an investment banker. I set up a, an investment banking firm 27 years ago, which causes me to travel around the world. And in my spare time, I watch Succession. <laughs> so this was a kind of outlier episode. I'm, I'm going to come out and say, I, I always say that the first time you watch it, it's tragedy. The second time you watch it, it's comedy. I can say that this time, the first time you watch it, it's tragedy. The second time you watch it, it's tragedy. It was written by Jesse Armstrong himself, which is rare. And Elizabeth, tell me if you think I'm off base on this, but this really came across to me as Jesse Armstrong taking the opportunity of writing a hit TV show to basically do a sort of 60-minute warning of what might happen on the 2024 election. I mean, sort of. I felt like the Minkin character was a little bit Trumpian, a smarter version of Trump. <laughs> I thought it was a little bit rehashing what happened in the last election, and particularly with the whole issue of whether ATN was going to call the election early. And the opposite thing happened at Fox. You know, Fox called Arizona for Biden at a reasonable time, but it, they internally in the newsroom, there was a lot of controversy about that because there was some thought on the part of the executives that the actual newsroom staff had jumped the gun and there was a lot of drama around it. In succession, ATN does exactly the opposite thing. They call everything early and then Tom gets blamed for doing that. And you can tell that it's they're setting it up to be a kind of election integrity scandal in the next episode or two. Well, yeah, but that's exactly why I... I took it more as a warning about 2024 than as a kind of rehash of 2020. And I think it's fair to blame Tom. He was the guy making all of the decisions. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Tom Wamscan's character arc is that he is really wound up with power in this show. He really does control ATN, which is an incredibly important job. At some point over the course of this season, in the middle of all of those layoffs that he was doing with Greg, he clearly fired Sid. So he is now unambiguously in charge of ATN. He is making the decisions. He is deciding when to make the calls. And he is taking his orders from the co-CEOs, Kendall and Roman, especially Roman seems to be really in control this episode in a way that we haven't seen before. And also the way that US elections work almost uniquely is that they are decided by the media. That like the point at which a, a candidate is considered to have won the election is, it just is the point at which the networks declare that candidate to have won. And you know, sometimes that can take days. But like, it's when the media says it has happened, that's when the consensus is that the president has won. So this is like, it really does underscore the power of the media. And then in the world of succession, ATN has like 50% of the election night viewership. Obviously, Kendall is telling Tom to, to juice the ratings at the beginning of the show. And he's done that. He creates this incredibly compelling television while also destroying the principles of democracy. And, you know, what I guess I, my question for Ewan is... Like come 2024, 
when Lachlan Murdoch is the undisputed CEO of Fox News, and Fox News is in a very similar position, is this something that could happen in reality? Sure, it could happen. And I think really the magic of this episode was Kendall Roy having a little momentary bout of kind of liberal guilt or emotional concern that he might be sending the country in the wrong direction. And at the same time, Roman is rather sarcastically saying, oh, it's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. Kendall is saying he is actually concerned for once about his daughter. And so I think, you know, that that reflected, I, I think, rather accurately, maybe the the concerns that people who are in the Fox orbit have, you know, to, they, they have to balance the business and presumably they have some human consciences as well. Do you think Lachlan has a human conscience? Yes, for sure. For sure he does. And I think he's. I think his friends are, again, I think this is success, something that succession gets right, which is their friends are all liberal, coastal, elite sophisticates. And so any time that they make a hard-nosed business decision, that's potentially jeopardizing their social lives and their, you know, their human interactions outside, outside of the Fox arena. The received opinion among Murdoch watchers is that Lachlan is significantly to the right of Rupert. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure that's completely right. I think the younger generation all have some sense of, you know, the environment which nobody in the older generation has. I think Lachlan may be the uh, the Roman character in this episode, although in many ways he's he's more like Kendall, I suspect. Emily, what's your big picture take here? Well, I mean, first, just to respond to what you said earlier, Tom Wamsgans has no real power here. He's not taking command of anything. He's taking orders, just like you said, from these brothers. It's clearly the brothers calling the shots. And the striking thing is, of course, that these two comically inept CEO bros, and we can talk about debate if they're inept or not, are deciding who wins the U.S. presidential election with really no care at all and no sense of responsibility or sense of journalistic responsibility. And that this is like they're running a news outlet where no one has a spine at all. Like at first you think this Darwin fellow that they introduced in the episode who, you know, clearly knows all the standards and kind of has been running election nights for a long time. You think, oh, he'll stand up, maybe resign or something, but he quickly comes around. Maybe it was the wasabi in his eyes (laughs) (laughs) to the brothers, you know, to doing what essentially Roman wants and what Mencken wants. Roman's sort of a Mencken puppet a little bit in this episode. So, I mean, yeah, no one in the newsroom has a spine. It just seems like it's all out the window. You think maybe if Sid hadn't been fired, it could have gone another way, but I'm not so sure. And if I was doing power rankings on this episode, I would say Roman won. Totally. Kendall came across to me as weak. Like, I guess he cares about his daughter or he did for like a microsecond, but he was more concerned with Roman having a relationship with this potential president than he was really with his daughter's anything. Shiv, I mean, she really cocked it up. You know, by the end, she's crying and swearing revenge, but she comes across just at the bottom of the heap here. She finally tells Tom she's pregnant and that goes over not well at all. It's just like a total failure of, you know, information is a bottle of fine wine and Shiv kind of screwed up her pour with that one, I think, you know? So yeah. Definitely. I mean, you might disagree with me about the power of Tom, but I think it's clear that he has more power than Shiv does in this episode. 
Yes, well, that's he also true. has he has a baseline of kind of medium competency all the way through it. You know, he's trying to adhere to Logan's standard about keeping the kids out of the bullpen so that <laughs> there's some separation between the owners and what's happening there. When Khan comes in, he says, Khan, you you can't be in here. And he's trying to manage all of this while he's managing the family infighting. And in the middle of the chaos, you know, Shiv pulls him aside and says, I'm pregnant. As somebody who's done election night coverage, I had a moment of sympathy for Tom when that happened. Like, why do you have to do this now? (laughs) And he's juggling like three phones as well, which is just such a great little thing. He's like, Shiv, I have three phones all blowing up in my hand. This is not the time to tell me that you're pregnant. But none of these people have any kind of like core ethics or standard or any core principle to act on. So they're just like bouncing all over the place. And it just came across quite clearly. And I think Tom is completely incompetent leader of this newsroom on election night. I think we can say that pretty, pretty clearly, despite his having three phones, you know, Emily, the reason I think is compelling is because each of those characters probably believes himself or herself to have a moral core, but it's pretty clear that they're just looking out for themselves. And the question of whether Tom has any power, I think he's constantly juggling who's going to win this. Should I be in the Matson camp? Should I be in the Shiv camp? Do I have a chance of really getting powerful and rich and staying with Shiv? Do I have to align myself with the Kenroy camp? He's particularly self-interested. He's not juggling that. He has thrown in his lot with Roman. I mean, that I think is pretty clear. The way after Shiv tells him that she's pregnant... He kind of walks past her without saying a word and gives her a glance. And it's just like, I, I don't even have any time for you. And he clearly, with the three siblings sitting there, standing there in the room, two of them, the two co-CEOs telling him, okay, we're going to call it. Shiv's saying, don't do it. And he he barely even listens to her. He, right. he ignores her. He's like, I am 100% part of this company. I am taking my instructions from the CEO. I'm going to you know, call Greg and tell him to make the call. And he's in the chain of command and he's playing an executive as best he can and not completely incompetently. And but one of the jobs of, you know, an executive is to take orders from the CEO and, you know, communicate it down the chain. And that's what he does. And that is him becoming the high ranking corporate executive who ultimately makes the decisions and well at least at least one step down from the ceo making the decisions in the chain of command so i'm not sure that i agree with emily on his sort of incompetence here obviously you know when the touchscreen goes on the blink and he runs around in a coke fueled sort of hyperactive useless circle shouting at people he's not really being very constructive or helpful but by the same token i think he he does take responsibility for making these decisions and when the rival tv stations start putting up stories about how tom wamsgans called the election too early like they were right like on some level he does have that responsibility he knows he has to take it you know in the in prior season he was saying okay fine i'll go to jail for all these mistakes the family have made you know he sort of knows that's the price that he pays for actually being on the inside and keeping what power he does have i think I'm expecting some twists and turns. I suspect the Kenroy, it looks like Roman is the, you know, the king of the heap this week, but I suspect Tom and Shiv may hatch a comeback. And I'm expecting, it's congenital optimist, I'm expecting a little bit of a recovery in the Tom and Shiv relationship. One question I had, maybe Elizabeth or you and you can answer this, when Fox on election night is doing election coverage, 
Murdochs aren't involved in making the call. Like, is that's just a creation of Jesse Armstrong's creativity that Tom Wamsgans looks to the CEOs to make the call on whether he should call the election, right? I would think it's more like- Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, they would want a heads up. And and if it was- Heads up, yeah. Going to be a surprise, I think they would, you know, want some input. But for the most part, the especially for stuff like that, because there are actually, you know, norms that if you violate, they, you sort of get kicked out of the pool of- People are taken seriously and given information as the returns are coming in. So you don't want to. Yeah, but those norms are like, don't let the exit polls leak, right? And also, I think we do need to remember that Rupert is a journalist. You know, he is a newsman by trade. He cares about the news on some level. And you're absolutely right, Emily, that Rupert's Fox has a relatively strong, not enormously strong, but like it exists, you know, sort of Chinese wall between the news core or, you know, Fox News corporate headquarters and the newsroom. But is it fair to assume that, like, Lachlan, who's much less of a journalist, much less of a news guy, doesn't have newsprint running through his veins, would think the same way? Not necessarily. And also, even Rupert was perfectly happy to, you know, effectively step in as the editor-in-chief of the New York Post and tell it what to cover and how to cover. And, you know, when that famous thing about, like, Dick Gephardt becoming the vice presidential nominee was just a story from Rupert that he decided to put on the front page of the New York Post. Maybe he treats Fox News differently from how he treats the New York Post, but in principle, yeah, the Murdoch's medal. Of course they medal. Rupert turned behind Tony Blair, which helped him very significantly in his first election, I think. There's a great line in this episode when Tom says, no brass on the battlefield, that's one of Logan's Geneva Conventions. Obviously, completely butchering what the Geneva Convention is. But anyway, I liked, <laughs> I liked the idea that there are three uh, principles coming down, each to try and influence. And I suspect that does reflect the way the Murdochs behave, as best I can tell, or the way I've seen it from a distance is, I think Rupert tried not to get involved, micromanage, but would come in with a big call every now and then. I don't think they're in the on the fringes of the newsroom in a conference room deciding how to call it quite. But but that that may be a bit of poetic license, dramatic license. But the yeah. the the, well, the classic the classic Roman Roy power move, which is literally the most cunning piece of power politics that Roman Roy has ever played in four seasons of succession, is when he leaves the room and tells his siblings that he's going to take a shit. And instead, he goes down to the newsroom floor and basically tells Mark Ravenhead to start, you know, saying that, you know, Wisconsin has been won. And he just freelances this and Mark Ravenhead obviously jumps at the opportunity to be able to do this. And that was Roman just absolutely crushing the wavering, lily-livered, liberal sensibilities of his siblings right there. Well, I think that's also, you know, that Roman's arc in this season in particular, he increasingly becomes more aggressive, less charming, more impulsive. And there was that exchange that he had with Kendall in one of the conference rooms where they're talking about steak and chicken. And Mm -hmm. uh, Roman says, you know, you never let me win. I always wanted steak and you guys wanted chicken when we were little. And Kendall says, you know, so all of this is that you're mad that we had so much chicken when we were a kid. And he explains that the reason why they never let him win, he's like, you were always throwing these tantrums. And we were afraid that if we let you have the steak, that you would think that the tantrums were sort of an effective tactic. But Roman's been throwing tantrums for the last three episodes. You know, he fired Jerry impulsively. And he's just asserting power in this kind of like steamrolling way. And so I, I think that, you know, leaving to go just tell Raven said to start to go ahead and call it, 
is in keeping with his development, where that kind of tantrum aspect of his personality, it really drives the way that he behaves as a manager. He's definitely being reckless, but he's also correctly, in a Machiavellian way, calling the power move when he has the chance. He becomes quite graphic. He says, if we don't call it now, we're going to be the most dickless eunuchs in Cucktown. He says <laughs> he's going full he's going full Breitbart on his brother. And and then, I mean, yeah, and his decision, and he actually quite explicitly says to his siblings what the what his decision is, which is, quote, let's just jam our heads in the bosom of history and blah, 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 blah. Like, he's like, yeah, he's diving in. He's like, he's seizing the moment in a way that makes 100% business and commercial sense, given his strategic aim of preventing the Gojo takeover of Waystar Royco, right? Because he has a cast iron, what he thinks is a cast iron promise from Mencken that the merger will be blocked. Obviously, given the timeline of this show, Mencken is not going to get sworn in to block the merger by the time season 10 comes around. So I suspect that's a moot promise and that the Gojo acquisition will blow up as the India numbers get revealed at some point, possibly in the next episode. If I were Madsen and I watched that all play out, I would not want ATN or anything to do with this company anymore. Like I feel like manipulating the results of a presidential election is a good reason to get out of a deal or perhaps I'm naive. I don't think Madsen is buying ATN. I don't think he really cares. Wants to. Like he would like to buy ATN he obviously, you know, wanted to pay a premium to get ATN, but like what he really cares about is the ratings, right? It's just like the number of people who watch it, the number of cable distributors in America who pay $3 per subscriber per month to Waystar Royco to be able to carry ATN. And he wants to turn ATN into a Gray Bloomberg thing, right? So like right. if ATN is terrible right now, I don't think that's reason for him to stop wanting it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
I was going to ask if we could please talk about the new Greg in this episode. He has a new relationship with Madsen as a normalist and has seemed to really cultivate that new relationship. And I feel like if, again, with power rankings, Roman's on top, but Greg is shifting slowly upward. Although yeah. Tom does try to rank him back down to Gregging, he still seems to have a little more power than he used to. They're all insulting Greg all the time, and they've got harsher <laughs> when, 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 when they're busy on election night. They're all particularly <laughs> insulting to Greg. I think there's some foreshadowing here, and when I'm predicting the future arc of the show, I like Shiv and Greg to come into power and I think from the liberal viewpoint, maybe Shiv's going to win in the end. But I, Greg, who says at the beginning of the show, he says, I'm feeling pretty good. When Tom's like, no, of course I'm tense. This is a tough situation. And there's a moment where Greg takes a beat. He steps back and he says, I'm feeling pretty good. And what is the shortest pre-credit sequence of the show? Like, it's just like, boom. Greg feels like he has some information. Maybe even Tom's teaching him how to guard that information. Or I think rumors of Greg's demise may be overblown. I like him for a comeback. Yeah, I mean, he, he keeps hilariously overplaying his hand. And so when, it, when Shiv corners him in the closet and he admits that he knows about her and Manson, and he tries to extort her and he says, you know, silence is golden, but how golden? And Shiv, <laughs> yeah. and Shiv completely just ethers yeah, the deal, him. She says, uh, the deal she offers is not very appealing. <laughs> she says, how about I offer to let you keep all of your internal organs on your inside instead of pulling them out of your asshole? And then he backs <laughs> off. I love so, that scene because she's so much shorter than him. Yeah. She's really looking up at him. And it's such a weird, like the power dynamic of having to look up at someone where you're trying to like ream them out is a little dodgy, it's I think. Also, Great when she asked him, you know, Gregory, are you attracted to me? And then there's this very <laughs> uncomfortable pause for a minute. And then she just lets him have it. She goes, because if you try to fuck me, I'll kill you. <laughs> Ewan, I need to ask you what happened last night in that sort of weird coked up debauched evening with Matson and Greg, where Matson forced Greg to dance with an old man. He, said, he didn't want to dance, but they made us dance. Like That's a real Logan move that Matson put, pulled back there. He also had to drink some drinks that aren't normally considered to be drinks. So he said, <laughs> Wait, isn't, isn't that what, what, isn't that what It was a hit of bodily fluids. So, well, yes, exactly. I think the, one of the magic things of this, of this TV show is the script writing is so dense. And I know in your last episode, they talked about playing it straight, that they never want to play the humor too heavy but you can tell there are writers just throwing zingers in all the time i love the line also about um i don't want to get addicted from two nights in a row he says when <laughs> tom tries to make him take coke too so that he's can't uh, subsequently blackmail tom presumably i think uh, i mean if you'd like me to project my own vile fantasies i think they went out pretty late around new york downtown they went to some probably inappropriate bars and probably a couple of gay bars too i think Matson is pansexual, and Emily, you 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 were being naive. I'm afraid. I think when you said Matson is, you know, doesn't want to own this uh, somehow compromised asset. I think <laughs> Matson is the most cynical player of the whole lot. I think he's half Daniel Ek from Spotify and half the CEO of Tesla. I think he's really just you know out there for shits and giggles, and mm -hmm. and I think he's kind of playing a game with his head of communications and with everybody else. I think he did detest Greg. There's Again, there's a certain lurking cunning to Greg. Greg is almost a, it's a Shakespeare, I hope I'm not becoming too pretentious now. It's a Shakespearean <laughs> character. He's the fool who actually has the wisdom. 
And I think Greg knew very well what he was doing and, and somehow, you know, against his better interests, went out with Matson and the crew who despise him and condescend to him and won them over by playing the game. And again, I'm going full in on this prediction. I think Greg's got a pretty good future in the last couple of episodes of this TV show. I mean, that's not, I was thinking it parallels Greg's arc with the Roys too, because he comes in as a fool. They see him as a fool, but he still managed to ingratiate himself into, you know, the chain of command and be Tom's, you know, right-hand guy. Tom treats Greg exactly as far as I could tell, as he was describing Madsen treating Greg, like that's what Greg yeah. is for. Is and as Logan treats Greg and as Kendall treats yeah. Greg. But like in, in the, it, like there is definitely a dynamic in this family where you demonstrate your ability to rise up the ranks by just taking a bunch of shit from a bunch of people. And the more shit you take, the more you survive. Did, did, did Greg tell us he didn't, when he was firing a hundred people in two days, did he tell us he didn't really feel anything? He was, he was fine with it. I think, <laughs> I think Greg's learning quickly. Well, there's that great piece of writing where, you know, in the beginning, Tom gives Greg the speech about information and the wine bottle and blah, blah, blah. You, you know, information is key and you store it and you hoard it and then you smash somebody in the face with it. And he talks about going out with Madsen and you think, oh, they just made fun of him the whole night. But then later it reveals that he found out about the Shiv Madsen Alliance while he was out drunk with Oscar and Madsen and all those people. So he has that wine bottle of information and then he uses it to kind of smash the potential alliances between the three siblings later. Well, he, yeah, he uses it against Shiv, right? Kendall and the Kendall Greg relationship is really interesting because remember that, you know, it was Greg who gave Kendall the notes that he saved from the fire to try and bring down Logan at the end of season two, I think. I can't even remember my seasons anymore. But like that Kendall-Greg relationship, there's still something there, and Kendall's still the CEO. And when Kendall comes up to Greg and just asks him, is Shiv working with Madsen? Greg says yes. He immediately coughs up the information. It is unclear to me whether he does so with like some sort of cunning motivation because he wants to harm Shiv or whether he just does so because he's congenitally incapable of keeping a secret. And if someone asks him for a secret, he will just tell them. I think their lives are so transactional. They have to make judgment calls on the fly. And Greg is kind of bumbling his way through, but he seems to keep his head above the water quite well. And he does whatever he has to do to keep his head above the water yeah, I'm not sure that was super cunning, but I think he, uh, like all of them, right, that's the premise of the show. They're all keeping their options open. You talked about it in the last podcast. There are constant flows backwards and forwards. There are no real friends. There are just, you know, useful contacts at any point. So I, I don't think Greg's decided exactly which team he wants to be on yet. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but... I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the biggest fuck-up in the episode by far, which is when Kendall asks Shiv to call Nate she doesn't. She just pretends oh, to call him. And it's like, just fucking call him. Like, even if you can lie about what he tells you, you can make something up, but like, at least call him. You know, that was just Shiv just on self-destruct mode. Yeah. Yeah. She could have just called him. She could have even said, my, listen, my brothers want me to ask you this. Yeah. <laughs> That's I yes. think how I would have played it. And then, yeah, fudge the answer a little bit. But it was so obvious that she was lying. It was almost like self-sabotage. Her whole trajectory in this episode felt like self-sabotage in some way. Yeah, she way. starts off low and gets lower over the yeah. course of the episode. She achieves nothing. She just loses. Give her a break. She's yeah. got a lot going on. Her father just died, <laughs> Felix. She's concerned about she democracy. The pregnancy thing. <laughs> and she's pregnant. She yeah. hated slash loved him. And she went to Tom to apologize, remember? Like, that is also in succession. Like, you're not, I don't think you're supposed to do that. But that's part of their fucked up dynamic right they're constantly either in humiliating or showing hints of frailty they're going to get mm-hmm. back together they're probably going to win and maybe greg's going to be part of it and she even screwed up because she had gone to kendall and roman and said you know tom can't be trusted anymore and they immediately had her back and then maybe like the following scene tom said something to shiv like you're getting hysterical which they say to her on multiple occasions in this episode yes. which was sort of interesting kendall immediately like says something like, watch it, buddy, you know, is on her side, which is good for her. It feels like, oh, she's got backup. But by the end, she's destroyed it. She's sabotaged it. it. Isn't the showrunners playing with our emotions? Because at the end, the closing stages, she's walking away from Fox News or whatever it is, mm-hmm. from ATN. And she's uh, on the phone to Matson and she swears revenge. Right. The fascinating thing is there was a brief minute, right? So Kendall and Roman gave her an offer on the private jet. Like, do you want us to fire Tom? And she demurs. She's like, yeah. Then she has that big fight. You know, in the previous episode with Tom, she has a really bad interaction with Tom in the hallway. And she's really angry at her soon-to-be ex-husband. And they make the same offer a second time. They're like, do you want us to fire him? And this time she's like, yeah, I think I do want you to fire him. And they seem perfectly okay with that and willing to fire Tom. But she can't keep that, alliance with her brothers for long enough for that to happen like the weird thing is that tom was you know one breath away from getting fired and it's only because shiv fucked up on that phone call to nate thing that he didn't get fired but she's elizabeth murdoch she's disparaged as as a woman there's a heavy laden hint of sexism through all of this the two brothers said that they were going to take care of her and include her in every decision they've completely blown through all of that She's absolutely morally right to be um, plotting against them. Okay, so yeah. you and since you know these guys personally, 
Tell us about the parallels between Shiv Tom and Elizabeth and her, you know, Matthew Freud, her ex-husband. Well, the Matthew Freud thing is pretty dysfunctional. I don't know. I don't know what kind of lawyers you have review these before they go out. But <laughs> Matthew Freud fathered a baby by Elizabeth's best friend, and Elizabeth, the best friend, didn't say who the father was. And Elizabeth held the baby and was very supportive of her best friend, single mum, and quite quickly discovered that Matthew Freud was the dad. I think Matthew Freud's a lot more slick than than Tom. Tom is sort of clunky, right, in, in this show. And although he has a certain cunning, Matthew Freud has more cunning and maybe even less scruples. But the interesting thing is for Elizabeth, I think she's always been on the fringes and she you know, had some success in the TV arena. But I think there was always a suggestion that she probably wouldn't take over because she was a girl and it should probably be a boy. I think we're seeing a lot of echo of that. And I think, you know, I'm looking forward to finding out how just how woke the showrunner is, because if he's woke, the woman's going to win. And the conventional modern TV book movie arc in the United States today is the female character has to come out on top. So now I'm being a little cynical, but I think there's a really good parallel there. I don't know if you've talked about this in the podcast, but one of the, one of the, my favorite news stories of the last year is the idea that in Rupert Murdoch's latest divorce settlement, from uh, Jerry Hall was as one of the clauses of the settlement. Jerry Hall purportedly had to agree not to discuss any biographical ideas or any show ideas with the writers of Succession. That was part of her divorce settlement, which I think goes to show how closely this does mirror the psychodrama that's the Murdochs. And I think Shiv is Elizabeth for sure. There was definitely a lot of misogyny running through this episode with the way she, Shiv was treated in those boardroom meetings, you know, calling her hysterical, telling her to calm down, portraying her as crazy. And she acted it too in a way where she was getting like choked up a lot, you know, and that was intentional, I think, intentionally kind of like playing up her weakness in this world, at least according to these people in this world. There was also a rumor some time ago that Lachlan had accused his brother James of leaking stories about the family to the writers of the show. I've met them all a few times. I'm not close to any of them, but people who know them better tell me the parallels are, are uncanny all the way through. And I think when real life is so so juicy, it's a rich mine of information for uh, for the showrunners here. In terms of the like gender relations here, the other <laughs> thing that gets dropped in is... Kendall creating what he calls an extra layer of bubble wrap around yeah. his daughter, which completely freaks out Rava because he didn't bother to like inform her mother that he was going to be like sending dark SUVs to follow them around the city, which is just like, you know, th- he then has this conversation with Shiv about like whether or not he's a good dad. And he realizes on some level that this is just not what a good dad does. But there is a, feeling or undercurrent there that he's trying to do the man thing and, you know, protect his women folk from whatever dangers might be lurking around the next corner. I think he says in this episode, like, everything I do is for you. And it's just so (laughs) nakedly false. (laughs) It rings so hollow. It echoes the kind of thing that Logan would say, you know, he's Mm -hmm. his only model for fatherhood is Logan. And so he's, of course, concerned that maybe he's fucking up too. 
Which is he's conscious about, right? He has that line to Shiv about like the poison dripping through or something. Yes, good line. I don't think we should simplify it too much because I think both things can be true. Again, I believe these characters really think they're doing the right thing and they get caught up in their venal self-interest and their appalling amoral behavior. But but at the same time, you know, Shiv tells her brother, Kendall, you're a good person, right? And so they're trying to live human lives throughout all of this. The other misogyny, which you haven't talked about in this week at least, is is Matson and Eber, which is like really quite extreme. And there are some definite Elon Musk echoes, I'm afraid, in, in you know, the kind of the, this bizarre behavior towards Eber, which is incredibly dehumanizing for her. And that's left her as a kind of empty shell. I suspect uh, there's some scope for her to, to to bring some revenge before we're done. Yeah, she can sink Gojo anytime she wants just by leaking the numbers about India. Meanwhile, of course, Shiv, (laughs) this reminded me, do you remember that woman? I can't even remember who it was. I think it was in the UK, Ewan, who immediately after the planes hit the World Trade Center on 9-11 sent out an email saying this would be a good time to bury bad news. And this was Shiv. She was like immediately on the phone to Matson saying like, oh, shit is going down with like, you know, the election right now. This would be a great time to bury the bad news that you actually have two Indias. It wasn't Rebecca Wade, subsequently Rebecca Brooks, was it? But I think, again, there was a, um, yeah, Rupert had a very bizarre relationship with, with his head of news in the UK, basically. And I think it's a slightly more complicated sexism because sometimes, you know, the female characters, most notably Shiv, Shiv can be like the truth teller at certain times, and has a certain power that comes from that. But when certainly the her brothers try to assert sexism over. In this episode, I think it's clearly Roman who's the truth teller. He's the one who's just calling bullshit on all of the, you know, wishy-washy concerns about democracy and just saying, like, look, this is, I have a plan here which makes perfect sense. Also, it helps that he is a Mencken supporter Although the relationship between Mencken and Roman, that amazing scene where he walks into Mencken's war room and they're on opposite sides of the room and they do this kind of ritualistic exchange of insults in front of everyone before they then go into the corner and have a real conversation. It's like, what? what what's unusual about that? <laughs> I feel like that's not normal among like, you know, <laughs> the way that CEOs talk to, you know, presidential candidates, but I could be wrong. <laughs> yes, a little unusual. I think maybe uh, maybe Roman is being a little bit naive, thinking that Mencken will abide by his bargain. I think Mencken, Mencken is happy to take it from Roman on election night when Roman can be helpful. I suspect um, we may discover that Mencken isn't quite as good a friend to Roman as Roman thinks. How do we feel about Connor in this episode, my oh, friend? Connor, with his weird <laughs> concession speech about, what was it, Jackrabbits? Like, he just rambling all over the place. <laughs> but he's going to get his ambassadorship, it seems like. They seem he's resigned to it. He's not going to get his ambassadorship. I don't know. Will is on board now. Um, put, put me in a van to Tajikistan. <laughs> <laughs> Your rhymes are compelling. <laughs> it's one of my favorite. Yeah, his potential ambassadorships are becoming steadily less attractive. Was, <laughs> he, tried for the, he tried for the UN early on. That was always a reach. But Tajikistan... There aren't many you'd want less than Tajikistan, I guess. <laughs> Couldn't I just be our fun guy in Uruguay? Uruguay, well done. <laughs> I don't know. They seem that Connor is winding up, if not on top, and then if not in such a bad place, not where Shiv is by any means. He sort of did his own thing. 
And now he swoops in at the end and he gets his little ambassadorship. Well played. No? Mogadishu was a little too car bomby for him. I can't remember where he <laughs> <laughs> He's an appealing character and it's almost too good, right? He, he, because he's so separate from it. He's not playing the succession game. So he mm-hmm. can be, in a funny way, the most morally outstanding of all of the siblings and definitely um, the only one who's got a functioning personal relationship in this rather improbable relationship with Willow, which has turned out to be a very healthy, mutually supportive, happy yeah. love yeah, Willow, Willow's coming through for him. It's like, yeah. wow. Connor comes out so upstanding because when he loses Kentucky and Willow says, you know, fuck Kentucky, he's like, yeah. no, no, no. Alas, Kentucky, Willow. Alas, vanity. <laughs> you know, he does the grown-up thing, which is increasingly unusual in our times. Okay, so favorite lines, Elizabeth? Any standouts in this one? Yeah, mine was when uh, Tom asked Greg to get him coffee and Greg says, I don't get coffee anymore. And then Tom goes through this escalation of what's going to happen if he doesn't get coffee. And he says, (laughs) if I get drowsy and I miss call Colorado instability, then the U.S. loses Colorado. China spots an opportunity, invades Taiwan, tactical (laughs) newts, fucking shit goes kablooey. And we're all back to amoeba. It's a long way back from pond life because you failed to get me a double shot. (laughs) (laughs) I like bodega sushi. Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> that bodega sushi had like, you know, that that turned out to be the Chekhovian gun. That caused the wasabi and the eye. Became a central character. I wasn't expecting the sushi to play such a central role. That scene was wonderful when he pours the LaCroix, the lemon. It's LaCroix. <laughs> it's natural. It's medical. It's not that lemony. It's just a hint of lemon. <laughs> Emily, favorite line? Again, I really like Connor this episode, so from his concession speech, I happen to be a billionaire. Sorry, but honestly, America, you flunked it. I guess you're going to have to find some other poor mooks paps to suck on. The corrupt bipartisan system zombie marches on. (laughs) Yeah, maybe there were some. I mean, I really did feel like Jesse Armstrong was in full-on tragic mode here. And weirdly, my favorite line, I think, was the no line at all where ATN calls the election for Mencken and you just see these shocked expressions on the faces of bunch of, you know, right wing or presumptively right wing people in the ATN headquarters, whether it's Shiv or the producers in the room or, you know, and then eventually we have Rava crying on the phone when she's talking to Kendall, like the, enormity of what ATN just did has is sinking in and ATN is presumably winning the ratings war by making this incredibly huge announcement and no one is happy about this mm. everyone in the room is seeing Mencken being proclaimed the president elect and they're like holy shit what the fuck have we just done and then he winds up you know and then and then we move on to his like crazy dog whistle racist acceptance speech. It's a decision made by a guy on coke, you know? And then an impulse decision made by a guy on cocaine. And then the end of the episode is just coming off the cocaine, basically, for everyone. There's a nice irony when Mencken is saying, you know, what is he, a clean broom? He's bringing back a clean, non-transactional, no compromises. And you see them looking aware that they've just tried to do a deal with him. They think they've done a deal with him. We'll find out. Yeah, no, and then, you know, when he makes that line about the marketplace where cunning men haggle for the best price, that's not me. And you're like, oh, great. We're just going to 
do the whole sort of anti-Semitic thing right in our acceptance speech. Let's let yeah, great, awesome. And everyone's like looking at this horrified because this was ATN. Without ATN, he wouldn't be out there. He wouldn't be saying this. And they're like, we have created this. And absent the anti-Semitism, of course, he absolutely did just haggle. That was precisely <laughs> what he just done. Wait, so the ha- saying he won't haggle is anti-Semitic? I thought it was a hint of anti-Semitism in there. It was a little bit of Merchant of Venice, yeah. Okay. The, not quite the moneylender, but something like that. He also talks about, he uses the word purity and, yeah. you know, cleanly and just sort of nods to white supremacists. Yeah, he says proud and pure, which is clearly like, you know, a proud boys thing. Yeah, very white supremacist, clean and xenophobic. Got it. Cool. Good job. (laughs) Because if they hadn't called the election for him, presumably what would have happened is no one, it would have been called for no one and sort of that fight over Wisconsin would have taken place over weeks and weeks, whatever. Something we've gotten used to, I think, in the post-Bush v. Gore America. Right. I think the, pol- the politics rings quite true, but as a banker, I just want to say the business also rings really true. I love the way that, mm-hmm. you know, Matson capriciously added whatever number of billions it was to his offer, the kind of the cadence of the ep- proposed M&A deal, the merger of uh, Matson's business and ATN is exciting. And, you know, we'll see whether the reverse Viking thing ever comes off, whether uh, maybe the Roy's take over Matson. Oh my god! There's only is, two is episodes that, left. Two episodes left. Next one is the funeral. Is Kendall going to attempt his reverse Viking run in the middle of his dad's funeral? Like this. This is a very succession move to have like two huge things happening at the same time. Yeah, who was it earlier in the season who said, "I'm pre-grieving. I'm pre-grieving the Roman. end of this show because I've really, absolutely loved it." And the, uh, as I say, the dense script with all the little one-liners that you could miss. I probably have to go back and watch the whole damn thing again for it to be the comedy which Felix promises us. But it's-, <laughs> it's a very dark comedy. This is about as dark comedy gets. I mean, Jesse Armstrong, you know, came up through the ranks of British TV with Armando Iannucci, who did The Death of Stalin, which is the only other thing I can think of which is quite as dark comedy as this. But like, they are really... You know, it reminds me a little bit of Yes Minister because it's so the writing is so deadpan and it's so character and, and one-liner driven. It doesn't have the the overt, this is obviously right, a comedy. Right, but that's the but, thing, right? Know. It's the Veep and, and Yes Minister comedies, right? And the death of Stalin and Succession are much darker than that and they aren't as laugh-out-loud funny. I'm going to lose the potential to be friends with Emily now for the rest of my life, but it reminds <laughs> me of... American Psycho. And the reason it reminds me of that is because the characters are so totally abject and horrific, but I kind of want to be them. And there's a little <laughs> bit of me. I keep thinking I want to be, I think I want to be Kendall, but no. you know, I, yeah, I do. I think I kind of want to be Kendall. And then, you know, sometimes I think, oh shit, I'm a bit more like Roman. Anyway, there's some part of me that finds them yeah. all quite appealing. Not Tom, but Greg Kendall and Roman, definitely. <laughs> But this is but this is absolutely right. And this is the running conversation that we've been having with Taffy Rodas Agner over three seasons now, is the degree to which the Roy's are aspirational. You know, they are terrible people, but there is this hint of aspirational wealth and power around them. And you and it's undeniable. I do I do investment banking in the fashion industry and this notion of you know, the quiet it's become a cliche now, the quiet luxury of their clothes has permeated the discussion of investment activity going into the luxury goods business and the apparel business. 
And, you know, succession is having quite a significant impact on uh, on the way investors think. I mean, it's, it's crazy to say that, but on some level, they're absolutely aspirational. Guilty as charged. Wait, the quiet luxury thing, we should, we'll talk like a brief few more minutes about that. So that's basically like wearing very expensive clothes, but they're not flashy or have logos or anything like that. And that Succession has basically made that a thing now, you're saying? And, yes, and Brunello Cuccinelli, famously, you know, Kendall cares, uh, Jeremy Strong cares a lot about what he wears, and he's very particular. It's this Brunello Cuccinelli thing, which is the kind of, if you're rich enough, you want to wear clothes that nobody will understand. You know, it could look like a basic sweater, but only an insider would know it's Laura Piano mm-hmm. or Brunello Cuccinelli, so it's looks like a regular zip-up mock turtleneck or something, but it costs $8,000. And people, that's, you know, it's considered, it's becoming considered the right way to think about luxury, a more subtle, refined, restrained luxury personified by Jeremy Strong's character in Succession. That's so American that you have like this show about like the worst people ever, and then people aspire to look just like them and a whole industry is pivoting to be like them more. That's no, the American of, dream to behave so badly as the Roy's. <laughs> I had my book party this week and a financier turned up wearing a very lovely sort of sport coat, which turned out to be made of boiled cashmere, which is apparently a thing. And when I complimented on him and said that it was the thing I was most jealous of on the whole, like at the whole party, he said, yeah, the thing is, it's the second most expensive material object I own after my car. He's like, that is how expensive these things get. I think Isaia in Naples has really run with the boiled cashmere thing. Yeah, it's a very exciting trend <laughs> in menswear. I don't, they boil the cashmere? I don't, why? It gives it a little extra texture. Interesting. You wouldn't notice unless you notice. <laughs> you don't know unless you know. If you know, you know. Ewan, thank you so much for coming on this show. This was absolutely mind-expandingly awesome. What a, what a pleasure to be on, on the podcast. You're doing God's work, and uh, this is such a wonderful show. Thanks for get, letting me chit-chat about it. We will be back on Saturday with Regular Slate Money. We will be back next Monday with episode nine, which looks like it's going to be Roman's, I mean, not Roman's funeral, Logan's funeral. Presumably there's only one Roy dying in this season. And yeah, many thanks to you and Relly for coming on, and many thanks to Jasmine Molly of Seaplane Armada for producing. And we'll be back on Saturday. 